On today's episode of Come Pray With Me, I will be interviewing Jeffrey Russell of the Ogden Buddhist Temple in Utah. He will be sharing the history and beliefs of the Jodo Shinshu sect of Buddhism, also known as Pure Land Buddhism. We will be discussing the ways Japanese culture shaped aspects of Jodo Shinshu, since the majority of its practitioners are of Japanese descent. Welcome to the show, Mr. Russell. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to be with us. It's my pleasure. So my first question is, what sect of Buddhism does your temple practice and what makes it unique from other sects of Buddhism? We are a Jodo Shinshu or true uh, Pure Land sect of Buddhism uh, founded in Kyoto in the early, early 13th century. Uh, one of the things that distinguishes Jodo Shinshu from many of the other uh, Buddhist sects is that uh, we don't have monks or nuns. Uh, we're a, a strictly a lay sect of Buddhism. Our ministers are ordained uh, by uh, the, the head church in, in Kyoto, but uh, they're free to marry and to have families, uh, as was our founder, Shinran Shonin. Yes, one of the one of the things one of the ways you can distinguish a Jodo Shinshu minister from others is that they have their hair. We actually during ordination we do take the tonsure, but then after that we're allowed to grow it back. So. so, what are some of the services that your temple offers, and how have they changed in the wake of COVID nineteen? Well, typically, we have uh, Sunday services um, because we're a Japanese American sect. We after the war, particularly, there was a desire to kind of look American. And so we have a Sunday service every Sunday. Uh, typically, once a, uh, one service will be uh, a special memorial service or uh, for families who've lost uh, loved ones during that month. And we usually combine that with something like, uh, well, uh, we celebrate, in actually, actually in January, we celebrate a service called Ho'onko, which is the memorial service for Shinran Shonin, our founder. Uh, in April, we celebrate Hanamatsuri, which is the celebration of the birth of Shakyamuni Buddha. And um, throughout the year, then in, in spring and fall, we have a service we call Nehane, which is kind of a period of reflection. That's, that's the time when typically the climate is temperate. And so uh, it, we're kind of called upon to rebalance our lives, I guess. I also noticed on your website that you recently had a social distance friendly Oban festival. Could you tell us a little bit more about what Oban is and what is its significance? Certainly, Obon is celebrated by virtually all Japanese Buddhist sects. Um, it's a celebration of our ancestors of our community that that have raised us. So it's it isn't just our biological ancestors, but it's the it's the all the people on whose shoulders we're standing today. And so we combine uh, Japanese taiko drumming and uh, folk dancing and eating uh, in just a, a big happy celebration where we get together with uh, friends and family and the larger community. It's uh, the Obon celebra celebrations in Salt Lake and Ogden are probably over half of the people who attend are not members of the temple. Uh, I've seen a lot of pictures and they are certainly very colorful and, and lively, so I can see why. <laughs> it's, 
Exactly. You know, we're, uh, and it's one of the ways we like to engage the community and get them to know us. Uh, our taiko uh, drumming group from the Ogden Temple is uh, played all over the state of Utah and even up, I think, into Idaho occasionally. They're uh, a very good group of performers and they, they represent us well. I noticed that you said that your sect of Buddhism is also called Pure Land Buddhism. So what's the meaning behind that? Okay, Pure Land Buddhism started really in China. Uh, it grew out of uh, readings uh, originally by the Indian masters uh, Nagarja and Vasubandhu. But uh, Tan Luan, uh, Shandao, and uh, Dao Cho were three Chinese scholars, Buddhist scholars, who looked at the sutras and saw that there was what you might say were was an expedient means uh, by which people could uh, attain enlightenment and that was by reliance not on their own practice but rather on the compassion of Amida Buddha and so that came to Japan really in the seventh or eighth century but in the Kamakura period when there was uh, all kinds of political and social upheaval. And when people were really convinced that uh, they were now in what's called the last Dharma age or the age of Mapo, uh, people began to look for, well, if I can't do this on my own because there's no true teacher who can help me achieve enlightenment, then, then uh, Pure Land was an alternative where you didn't have to have a wonderful teacher. You could rely on Amida. And then um, basically, at the end of your life, you would, would go to the Pure Land, uh, Amida's Pure Land, and then there you would have the opportunity, freed from all the worldly constraints, to attain enlightenment and return to uh, the, world of, uh, the, the world of delusion as a bodhisattva. So uh, it became a very popular form of Buddhism, particularly with the, uh, with the lay people, with the common people. Uh, up until that period, Buddhism had been primarily uh, practiced by the elites who had the time and the, the, the leisure and the money to uh, retain a priest and, and maintain a, some kind of a, a dojo or practice hall and things like that. But uh, Pure Land was something that all of the, that anyone could practice. And it, in fact, uh, the 18th vow of Amida Buddha from the, uh, the larger sutra says that uh, if, uh, I, if, not, if all of the sentient beings of the, of the 10 quarters cannot, do not attain enlightenment, may, not, may I not attain enlightenment. So the idea from behind that is that uh, the Pure Land is available for everyone. It isn't something for only men. It isn't something for uh, only the elite, uh, only people who can practice. So we call it the easy path. That's a very uh, beautiful sentiment behind it. And it reminds me of this old proverb and I'm paraphrasing here, but basically uh, it was a fisherman that has a heart full of compassion and inner peace is closer to the Buddha than the scholar who's read over a thousand books. And I feel exactly. like I get that same uh, vibration from you and from your temple. 
Well, actually, uh, one of the things the there are uh, what we call Myokonin, who were common people who really grasped truly uh, the faith in Amida Buddha. And uh, a number of them were actually quite good poets. And so uh, we celebrate a lot of their uh, a lot of their work, and and it's really the idea that, as as you said, it you don't have to be learned; you have to you have to take it into your heart, uh, not into your head, uh, in order to get there. That's very true. So when uh, Gautama Buddha, also called a Shakyamuni Buddha, began preaching his ideas to people, he often spoke of a middle way. So what did he mean by this, and how do Buddhists follow the middle way in their lives? Well, if you look at the at the history of uh, Gautama, uh, Siddhartha Gautama, uh, who, as we as you mentioned, we now call Shakyamuni Buddha, uh, that's that's because he was of the Shakya clan in northern India, and he's the first recorded Buddha. Although we don't believe he's the only one that ever existed prior to that. But if you look at his history, when he was a child, he was raised in luxury. His parents wanted to keep him from seeing any illness or people who were deformed or anything like that. They wanted him to become the, the political leader, uh, the warrior, the head of the clan. But um, his, his tutor, whom... Uh, many people say was his charioteer, took him out into the city. And there he saw sickness and old age and death and was kind of appalled. But at the same time, because he was compassionate, he also wanted to see what he could do to, to help others. And so the fourth time he went out into the city, he saw a, uh, a yogi or a, some kind of an ascetic who seemed to be the happiest person in town, basically. And he wanted to be like that. So he left uh, his wife and child and, and all of his fancy clothes and everything behind him and joined a group of ascetics. And so for several years, he traveled around and almost starved to death. And he was actually revived by a, a, a goat herd who gave him a, a bowl of milk and, and rice. And he kind of woke up and said, you know, that really didn't work. You know? <laughs> That doesn't make sense. Uh, you can't you can't uh, alleviate suffering if you're dying. Uh, and so then he he went and meditated under, under what we call the Bodhi tree now. Uh, and at that time, finally, he woke up to what we call true reality. And when he did, he realized that the the source of our discontent is our attachments to the wrong kinds of things. And so when we talk about the middle way, what we really are saying is we wanna balance our lives against those two extremes of, of either deprivation or, or excess. And so for us, in many cases, it's a matter of now in a modern world, how do I practice the middle way? Well, uh, I try not to uh, be too acquisitive. I fail a lot, but but you know at the same time, if we if we can balance our materialism with our spirituality, 
in in a meaningful way, then uh, we can probably find that middle way, that middle path. It's very beautiful, and I like how much balance is stressed and maintaining that balance. Exactly. It's you know if you if you go too far to one side or the other, you end up in the same kind of situation we are in politically now in the United States, where you know there are, it's going to be the people in the middle who are going to pull the country back together again. It's not going to be people from either extreme. So my next question is, what are the three marks of existence? The first one is dukkha, which is translated usually as suffering. Um, I like to think of it as kind of perpetual dissatisfaction. Okay, um, because we're never entirely happy with the way things are. You know, some days are good, some days are bad, but, but you know, we really like to have them be good all the time, but they never will be. And that's because of the other two, uh, you know, the other uh, two marks of existence. One being anchita or uh, interconnectedness and impermanence. And the other one being uh, anatta or uh, no, what's called, sometimes translated as no soul or no body. And what those both relate to is that uh, in life, our, uh, our bodies are constantly changing, our surroundings are constantly changing. And if we try to hold those things back, I like to make the analogy that, you know, if you buy a puppy, and you expect him to always be a puppy, you're going to be disappointed because sooner or later, this thing is gonna jump up in your lap and knock you down. Uh, so you, a puppy's nature is to grow. Our children's nature is to grow. I mean, as cute as, as cute as a kid could be at three years old, let's say, at 15, they become a teenager and now you've got a problem. But, <laughs> but, but that's the way it's gonna be, you know? Uh, that's just the nature of, of, our, of our existence. We are a construct, a mental construct. And we don't ever really truly perceive reality. Uh, we're always looking through a veil of, of our own delusion. And when we finally realize that, we realize that our physical body is just a construct, that uh, it changes, it decays, it's gone. Uh, and that's, that's the way it is, but, you know, getting rid of our attachments to those things that, uh, that hold us back, uh, will allow us to live more peacefully. Uh, you know, somebody says, well, you mean, aren't you attached to your children? Of course we are, but it's, I, I like to use the term fixation instead of attachments. If we can get rid of our fixations, then we can live a more peaceful existence because we won't be driven by drugs, gambling, sex, buying everything under the sun, Amazon, whatever it might be. Well, I think that's definitely a very enlightening take. And that sort of reminds me of, oh, love without attachment. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's, it's a case of when you love someone freely, 
they're always free to go. And at the same time, they probably won't want to. That's because you have true. this you have this mutual respect and and care for one another, but you're not trying to get the other person to be something they're not. That's very true. So what are mantras and how do uh, Buddhists use them in their practice? Most of the most of the mantras really come out of Tibetan Buddhism uh, or out of um, Vajrayana Buddhism, which is kind of the, you know, the Theravada and Mahayana are the two main branches of Buddhism that everybody is familiar with. Uh, and and by the way, I forgot to mention, but Jodo Shinshu is a Mahayana sect. But uh, Vajrayana is uh, kind of a mystical uh, sect of Buddhism. Um, they favored the the lone monk under the tree rather than uh, the monk in the monastery and that. And uh, so the mantras grew out of the idea that, that words have power. And so by repeating a mantra, you could uh, invoke a protection, for instance. We really, in, in Jodo Shinshu and in most Buddhist sects, we really don't have mantras to speak of. As I say, it's mostly the Tibetans. Oh, I didn't realize that. Thank you for explaining that to me. So what are some of the ways that Jodo Shinshu or Pure Land Buddhists use prayer in their faith? Well, because we don't believe in a, an external spirit that, that has power over our lives, uh, we don't practice petitionary prayer, okay? But our, our founder wanted us to always express our gratitude for what we've already received. And so uh, we, we recite a phrase, Namu Amida Butsu, I place my reliance in the Buddha Amida, which is a way of saying, thanks for what I have. To a certain extent also, thanks for what I'm promised. Well, I think that's definitely something we could all learn a lot from. It's important to take some time and be thankful for the things we already have. Exactly. It, it can be a little awkward sometimes when I have Christian friends who say, you know, my, my mother is sick, and would you pray for her? Um, I, can, I will say, I will keep her in my thoughts. Uh, because I think there is some, some power, actually, in, in collective thought. Um, I think we, we see cases of that routinely, where people will recover unexpectedly from illness, uh, because of the people around them, you know, because of the people really working to uh, raise their spirits and, and help them to heal themselves. Do you have any prayers that you would like to share with our audience today? Um, one of the things that we have been practicing or trying to practice lately is metta or loving kindness. We will occasionally, we actually will, will use this in our services sometimes as a way to kind of again, ground ourselves in uh, where we ought to be, how our minds ought to be working. Periodically, ministers assistants like me have to give what's called a Dharma talk as part of a service. And so I did one that, that ended with uh, the metta prayer. My heart is filled with loving kindness. 
I love myself. May I be happy. May I be well. May I be peaceful. May I be free. May all my friends be happy. May they be well. May they be peaceful. May they be free. May all my enemies be happy. May they be well. May they be peaceful. May they be free. If I have hurt anyone, knowingly or unknowingly, in thought, word, or deed, I ask for forgiveness. If I have been hurt by anyone, knowingly or unknowingly, in thought, word, or deed, I ask to extend my loving kindness. That's very beautiful. Thank you for sharing that with us. Did you have anything else you would like to discuss on the show today? No, I'd be happy to, um, you know, if you have any further questions that, that have come up as we've been talking, I'd be happy to uh, continue and, and try to answer them as best I can. Well, I am interested in some of the aspects of Japanese culture as they relate to the temple. And I know that they've had a few uh, different services in the past, I believe, related to it. Because uh, Jodo Shinshu started in Japan, and most of our, and all of our early members were, who came from Japan, basically after the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, people who were looking for cheap labor began to recruit the Japanese. And so uh, Japanese came over for, to work in the railroads, to work on, in agriculture and things like that. Uh, so to allow them, and since many of them were from working class, most of them were, were Jodo Shinshu. So in 1899, the, uh, the home church, Hongranji, uh, sent ministers to San Francisco to be missionaries, not only to the Japanese community though, but they, they sent English speaking missionaries so that they could also uh, teach the, uh, the Westerners about uh, Pure Land Buddhism. And so early in the 20th century, there was a, uh, a Nambutsu society that was composed of uh, Caucasian members who had been led by these, by these ministers. Our memorial services and things like that that we still conduct really are a continuation of the Japanese practice. Uh, so for instance, when a person dies, uh, first we have a funeral, then we have what we call a seven day service, uh, which is after the body has been uh, interred. Then we'll have a 49-day service. Now, in some sects, that's because supposedly the, the soul hangs around for 49 days before it finally leaves. Uh, for us, it isn't, it isn't that. But, uh, and then we'll have typically a one-year, uh, three-year, and five-year services and so forth, kind of a, oh, extending out over longer periods. But it's really a way of bringing the families back together because um, our belief is that once our loved one's physical presence is gone, they continue to live in our hearts. And so when we come back together again and remember them, uh, it gives us strength because we now you know, have that, that bond again of family and, and, and memory. And it also kind of patterns the, the way people handle grief. So at the funeral, there'll be tears. At the seven day, there sometimes are. By the 49 day service, 
you're telling stories about the funny things that you did with the person who's gone. And so, uh, you know, your, your grief is now transformed into something that you can deal with in a more meaningful way. I have to agree. And I really admire and appreciate the Buddhist approach toward death, specifically the one that uh, Jodo Shinshu Buddhists have, because I feel like a lot of times when someone we love dies, we're sort of expected to push it under the rug or not talk about it as if it's somehow like a taboo, but death is still a part of life and our existence. And even though it can be a really painful and sad part, it's still something that we have to learn how to confront and deal with in a healthy way. And I liked how you talked about at the first service, people are crying at the seventh service, not so much, but then by the 49th service, people are remembering the person and just being happy that they were a part of their lives, which I think is very beautiful. And that attitude really helped me out a lot since I've uh, recently lost several people I know to COVID. Yeah, it's unfortunate that everything is impermanent, you know, and and so in Buddhism, we, we stress that there is an end. We actually, our eighth abbot, uh, Renyo Shonin, wrote a, uh, a letter to uh, his followers that, that we now read at funeral services, and it's called Letter on White Ashes. And it basically stresses how, uh, you know, in the morning we may be radiant with health, but in the evening uh, our eyes may be closed and, and we'll be carried out to uh, the field to, uh, to the funeral pyre. And so uh, wouldn't it be a good idea then to focus on the things that matter and uh, to rely on Amida Buddha? That's very true. That's very true. Thank you again so much for being on the show. It was wonderful to have you as a guest. It's been my pleasure. To learn more about Jodo Shinshu and attend social distance friendly services, visit www.ogdenbuddhistchurch.org. While researching for this episode, I found the book Ocean, An Introduction to Jodo Shinshu Buddhism in America, very helpful.